Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, World Microbiome Day takes place tomorrow, June 27th. The theme this year is celebrating the important role microbes play in the health of humans, animals, plants, oceans and the entire planet. If you're confused and you didn't have the date marked in your calendar, I'll be joined by pharmacist Una O'Hagan to find out more and how you can mind your own microbiome. Dr Eddie Murphy on how social anxiety isn't just fear of going out. And I'll also be hearing from an author who wishes to remain anonymous, but who has written a book about his experience of returning home to mind his ageing parents. We'll be meeting the reluctant carer a little later in the show. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'm good. I was so buzzed up from a very fun weekend last weekend that I seem to think I was invincible. I think it's the time of year. I mean, we had the solstice this week, the longest day of the year. So it means we're having long, bright days. I feel full of energy, but I'm not a Duracell bunny, as I learned. I think I pushed it a little bit too hard with the late nights and various endeavours and I crashed for the second half of the week. But do you know what? I think you have to make hay when the sun shines and then retreat a little more in the winter. And hands up, I didn't find it that easy or back to myself once the lockdowns and the pandemic faded a bit more into the background. Getting back to 2019, Claire, just didn't seem to happen. And it took some reconciling. Of course, you can never really go back. But I did have a bit of an existential, who am I now and what's going on? But what I have found and the reason I'm referring to it now is that the more I do things I love to do in 2019, like go out with friends to a birthday party, to a gig, have a live work event. It's like I put another piece of the puzzle back together. And money is something that has been coming through for me this week, not the attainment of it necessarily, but the awareness and control around it. So one of my course lectures this week was from a lady called Manisha Thakur of MoneyZen.com. And she was talking about why we just bury our heads in the sand about spending, about saving. And I think we forget about all of the areas in life when we talk about health and wellness. We think nutrition and exercise, but we forget about relationships, finances and all the other elements of life that can cause so much stress. And I interviewed Santa Sogaro. She's the Caribbean dub on Instagram and well worth the follow. And she recently presented The Price of Everything with Connor Pope. So she's coming on my podcast, Changemakers, and she blew my mind with her words. I met her at a wellness event recently and I loved her advice and her energy and to hear her story of coming back from debt as a single mum of two. And her first step was actually believing she was worth more than feeling so low that she didn't need to keep spending above her means to keep up with the Joneses or who knows who we have in our minds when we do this. And she wrote everything down and took control. So for the first time in my life, I'm going to do the same. Thankfully, I'm not in serious debt, but I never sit down and work it all out. It feels insane to have got to midlife and to say that. But there's empowerment in taking control, so I will let you know how I get on. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, World Microbiome Day is taking place tomorrow, Monday the 27th of June. Uno O'Hagan, pharmacist and owner of Mars Pharmacy, joins me in studio now. 
Hello, Una. How Hello, are you? Claire. Lovely to see you as ever. Oh, thank you. So the microbiome is a big deal considering it's a global event. Absolutely, yeah. So people might not realise that your microbiome is an ecosystem that lives in and on and around you. Um, it is made up of lots, of, trillions of bacteria, protozoa, fungi and viruses. And together we call that ecosystem your microbiome. Um, it is it, there's more bacteria in your human body, Claire, than there are cells. So essentially, like we're a big ball of bacteria walking around in a human host, I guess. Um, it weighs over two kilograms in weight, heavier than the human brain. And there's more diversity in your microbiome than there are, you know, different species in the Amazon rainforest. Wow. So, yeah, it is phenomenal. And we don't, we're only scraping the surface. We don't know anything really too much about it, but there's so much research going on globally, all over the world. And, you know, what does a microbiome do? It, we know it's really critical in, in terms of digestion, in terms of, you know, breakdown of ca- complex carbohydrates, um, production of vitamins and minerals, releasing all of that from your diet. Um, it's really important in the production of what we call short-chain fatty acids. They're really, really important components for so many elements in our body. They're anti-inflammatory, anti-carcinogenic, lo- lots of other um systems that they're involved in. It's really important for detoxification and for training your immune system because actually 70% of your immune system is in your gut. So you've got to have a really healthy microbiome to support your immune system as well. Um, And also now there's a huge link between the microbiome and inflammatory conditions. So we know with the microbiome being literally halved in the last 80 years, so since the 1940s and you know, with the, I suppose, processed food and our diet changing um, back then, and also with the invention of antibiotics, because antibiotics kill our microbiome, whilst they also are fantastic for killing infection, um, we have lost half of the species that we had in our microbiome back then. So in 80 years, half of those bacteria are gone, uh, never to return. So Really what we need to do is protect what we have and try to stabilise it and make sure we don't lose any more. So this big focus on the microbiome is really, really important. And and now there's a lot of research into what does the microbiome do and what relation does it have with our mental health? Because we know our gut and our brain are connected via a physical connection called the vagus nerve. And when I was going to college and learning about this, we always learned that there was loads of neurochemicals moved from the brain to the gut. And that's why you got that gut feeling or, you know, butterflies in your tummy. But actually, we have discovered now that it's a two-way street. It's like the M50, this vagus nerve. And there's more transmission that goes from your gut to your brain. In fact, they say our gut has as many neurons as the brain of a cat. So there's a lot goes on in our gut that affects our mental health as well. And and we see that with some of the research coming out relating to Parkinson's, for example, and now how they believe actually what's going on in your gut is leading to Parkinson's disease. And this is going to set off a whole chain of, I suppose, discoveries in terms of neurological conditions. You know, all of these things may not actually begin in the brain. It may all be related to the gut. And why did you say the brain of a cat there? Well, what they have done is they've looked at how many neurons would be in the brain of a cat and they have discovered there's the same number of receptors in our microbiome, in our gut. And why? I mean, I'm a big cat person, so are we suggesting that a cat's brain is... Want to be admired. Well, they're very clever animals, aren't they? You would know that, Claire, if you if you have cats. Like, they're very um, smart and very intelligent animals. So, the, like, your microbiome and your gut can survive essentially on its own. 
You know, it is a distinct organ in itself. So, but it is connected. And I suppose people often thought like gut health, even when I, again, when I was at college, we always thought your gut is there to break down food, you know, release nutrients from food and eliminate waste. And that was essentially what we learned. We didn't learn about how it's connected to your skin health, your mental health, inflammatory conditions within our body. But this is where research has taken us now. So it's almost like we knew it, but like we couldn't join the dots before. Uh, whereas now the, the body of research coming out from like lots of research centres all over the world um, is showing these different connections. So I think we'll look back in 10, 20, 50 years and kind of go, how do we not know that? Um, when instinctively we do know that, that, you know, what we eat and what we can absorb has an impact on other things, you know. And and we can see as well the correlation in the last 80 years, as I said, whenever we have this destruction of the microbiome, that there's been a huge surge in inflammatory conditions. So, like, I'm a trained pharmacist, as you said. I'm qualified 26 years now. When I first qualified, we would not see, you know, for example, Parkinson's or MS in younger, the de- younger demographic. And whereas now we can see so much more, number one, incidence of these conditions, um, but actually younger people are getting them as well. And that would have been ne- nearly unheard of, very unusual when I first qualified. So even in that time, that 26 years, there's ba- definitely been a shift in the disease pattern and the age profile. So why is that? Yeah, That's and the, the same with autoimmune. Yeah, yeah. That we have a prevalence of that we still don't fully understand. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not trying to necessarily make connections. But you're right. The research takes time. Absolutely. And likewise, allergies are hugely on the increase. So where does the microbiome live? Mainly in your gut, but but also around us in the outside nature world. Yeah, in the nature, in in the world, in our environment, on our skin as well. Claire, so like in our lungs, everywhere in our body, but but the majority of it is in the gut, yeah, because these little bacteria, uh, in principle, there are viruses and protozoa and everything as well, but mainly the bacteria are good bacteria, as we would call it, the ones that we want to flourish and grow. Um, that's where they mainly hang out. And and they're the, the main function that we know and as well, you know, research would be the breakdown of complex carbohydrates to, in- to ensure that you can release, um, the, you know, the sugars from those to, to be able to absorb those. Um, the, the production of vitamins, um, you know, vitamin K and, and the likes are made in your gut. Um, by these bacteria um, and also the detoxification. They they also help with bile motions, um, you know, regulating your bile motion. So if you have an unbalanced gut or as we call it, a dysbiosed gut, where um, I always like to refer to like a, almost like a field, right? And you have a field of flowers uh, and you're always going to have a few weeds in that. But what you're trying to do is to feed the flowers and to get the flowers to grow you're never going to eliminate the weeds. So the, I always say the flowers are like the good bacteria. There's always going to be bad, bad bacteria there. There's always going to be pathogenic bacteria. We don't want to get rid of them completely, but we want them to sit there and behave themselves type thing. And what you're trying to do is grow the good bacteria. So to get the balance right. And unfortunately today in the Western world, our balance is completely off because of diet, because of our sleeping patterns, because of our stress levels. Um, because of the overuse of antibiotics, because as I said, if you take an antibiotic for tonsillitis or a chest infection, you know, it kills that infection and brilliantly so. But antibiotics don't know what's a good bacteria and a bad bacteria. So when you take them, they knock out your good bacteria in your gut as well. And it takes a year 
for your good bacteria to get restored on its own after one course of antibiotic. And you know that people are on several antibiotics all of the time or it might be on, you know, a low dose antibiotic for recurrent, you know, UTIs or for acne. And, and so they're not giving their body a chance to restore those good bacteria. So and then the consequence of that is less good bacteria, more bad bacteria. And, the, and that's what we call dysbiosis, when the balance is wrong. Um, and that can lead to all sorts of problems. So in the gut, it can lead to bloating, cramping, pains. You know, people describe um, eating certain foods and they just bloat out straight away because they can't just break down what they're eating. Um, their bowel motion, so constipation is huge. Again, when I first qualified, we wouldn't see as many children who'd be taking Movicol and, and, you know, laxatives to regulate their bowels. Now this is a big, big issue, particularly in children and in the elderly as well. So, and this is all relating back to your microbiome and, and just that bowel motion. So you don't have the right bacteria, then therefore you can't have the right bowel motions. You some loads, Lots of people would be constipated, but then also the, the reverse as well, particularly when you have inflammatory bowel conditions. Um, IBD of one sort, you know, a lot of people suffer from chronic diarrhoea. Um, so, and people can fluctuate from one to the other, even patients with IBS or IBD can fluctuate. So... So all of that is wrong as well, but it's much more than just what's going on in the gut. Um, because what happens then is if you have chronic constipation, your gut becomes distended, so stretched. And of course, the gut wall is only one cell thick. And the reason for that is to allow for proper diffusion of all of these nutrients from your food to get into your circulation really fast. Otherwise, they, you know, they're not absorbed. So that gut lining is really, really thin and it can become compromised. And if it becomes stretched, what happens is you get little lesions and and cracks and tears in it, little fissures. And then what is in the gut that should stay ordinarily in the gut, neurochemical aggregates, escape from the gut. And they get out and they get into your circulation and they travel the vagus nerve. And we know this now from research, them, you know, scientists marking these. And they can be found in large deposits in the brain. And that sets off then inflammatory conditions in the brain. And that's what the body of research going into Parkinson's is showing, that there's a particular protein that should stay in the gut that they now can find in large deposits in the brain. And they believe that that could be one of the reasons for the onset of Parkinson's. Wow, it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And when you look at your body in that way and what a miracle it is, yeah. how it all works, if yeah. something goes off balance, of course there's going to be repercussions, health repercussions. So yeah. how do we protect our microbiome and get the balance back. Okay. Well, I think that firstly, you need to look at diet um, because these little bacteria, they need um, different fibres in order. That fibre is their food. So they need that to actually multiply and grow. So if you don't feed them what they need, their food, they won't grow. So and each of these bacteria, we know, prefer different fibres, believe it or not. So there's loads of species, as I said, Back in, before the 1940s, there was 500 known species of bacteria and 500 unknown species, as in we didn't know what they did. Now we have 250 and 250 that's been halved. So 250 species of bacteria in there that we know something about. And we know that so, some of them prefer different um different complex carbohydrates. So we always say diet is really important in terms of eating plant-based diet. Um, The more diversity you can um, get onto your plate, the better. The more colours because they they prefer different fibres. And I think when people hear plant-based now, they think no meat, but you're just trying to up the amount of plants. And people forget oats, 
yeah. are plants. Yeah. You know, you're and just cereals, trying yeah, whole you're just grains. trying to get as many different yeah. foods in every week because we yeah. get stuck in a rut, don't we? A bowl of cereal in the morning, yeah. a sandwich at lunch, a chicken breast and potatoes and veg in the evening. Yeah. And just a variation of them day after day after day. Absolutely. And variety is a key. Yeah. Variety is yeah. a key. And I always say, like, oh, say, eat the rainbow. So when you're looking at your plate in the evening time, if you see only two colours on it, go to the fridge and pick another colour. It could be raspberries or strawberries. It doesn't matter. Just get another colour on your plate. The more colour you have, the more diversity you have and the healthier microbiome will be. And if you keep eating, I suppose if you keep purchasing the same vegetables and fruits and everything every single week, then the, your diversity is limited. So when you're shopping... Add in something that you wouldn't normally cook or eat or whatever. Just experiment. Yeah, because Google it. Find a recipe. Yeah. We are lucky that we yeah. have all that at our disposal. Totally disposable now. So I think diet is number one for me. And then number two, I think, is sleep and exercise. We know exercise actually stimulates the microbiome as well. So um, so just, you know, moving. And I suppose now, particularly throughout COVID, and we're all working from home and on the laptop or whatever, we have become, you know, we're just not as active um, as we would, be, would have been before, like years gone by. So, and just with cars and everything as well, we're not doing as much physical exercise. So, so exercise is important, managing your sleep and, and stress as well. We know that there's a link to, you know, when you're stressed, you feel it in your gut or whatever. So all of the stress hormones do uh, impact that. And then the, the quickest way, I suppose the other thing would be try and think about your use of antibiotics. Don't be going asking for an antibiotic off your doctor for things that, you know, colds just and, and flus don't respond Almost to. Almost take them as a last resort. Exactly, that's how bear that in mind. Absolutely, yeah. But bear in mind, you know, the pros are it gets rid of an infection. If you know you have an infection, absolutely, antibiotics are life-saving medication. But just bear in mind your usage of that because, yes, it might be clearing up something for you, but actually it could be causing a, another problem. There's the an impact end. there. What about supplements? Yeah, well, the quickest way to supercharge your microbiome is by taking a food supplement that contains live and active bacteria. There's no question about that. And the one that we would champion in, in Mars all of the time is Simproof. Um, because the bacteria in that are live. Well, I think it's really interesting that you use the analogy of a field because that's really what it is that you're trying to do, isn't it? You're, you're helping your farm, yeah. yeah, your garden to flourish exactly. inside and out. Yeah. Um, lots of fascinating insight and advice there. Uno O'Hagan, thank you so much for coming on. Not at all. Thank you for having me in. Now, my next guest has requested he stay anonymous for this interview and on the cover of his book, The Reluctant Carer. Finding himself returning to his family home in his midlife to care for his parents in their 80s, he has documented the journey, the good, the bad and the downright funny. Poignant though it is, and he joins me on the line now. Hello, Reluctant Carer. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on on the programme. As someone who said goodbye to her own dad a year and a half ago after watching him decline with dementia, I know better than anyone that you have to find humour in these situations. And your book has many, many funny moments. It is an important part of the process, isn't it? Well, um, I think if we are fortunate enough to have access to it, then I can't conceive of the experience without the ability to see what was so dark that it became light in it and and those sort of mad juxtapositions and things that, you know, and, and our ability to sort of forgive each other through bursting out laughing and stuff like that. If you come from a family where that was cultivated and through which you can still communicate and, and you can actually see that trumps the circumstances, you know, so, you know, the, the, the funny will out. So I, I feel very blessed that I grew up in a family where I guess, you know, we owe some of our sense of humour to that 
right? And even as I was, I suppose, losing my sense of myself and, and the people who had looked after me as I looked after them, that, that did connect it for me. I mean, thank, yeah, thankfully, thank them and thank God I could find it funny, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not the same in every situation and it depends on what you're, you're dealing with, but it was a really interesting insight into human behaviour for me, even in it, I could observe it that even through some of the darkest moments, like driving down our road on the way to the funeral and it was in COVID, so all the neighbours had to come out. Obviously, that was a huge, sad moment, but somebody said something funny and we all burst out laughing and it is like something you need. You need a chink of light every now and then to just keep taking that next step forward. Talk to me a little bit about wanting to stay anonymous in in this book Um, and sharing this journey. Well, there are there were multiple reasons, really. Um, the most practical and perhaps relatable one is the fact that when I was living with my parents, you know, they still had what I might call an old-fashioned landline, and a good deal of my time was spent defending them for people who were, in one way or another, trying to take their money. You know, the phone would ring multiple times a day. It doesn't matter how many directories you exit or what what the quite is going on. Uh, particularly if you've got sort of my parents had sort of one foot my dad maybe had one toe um in the digital realm so he they had the internet and stuff so anyone calling up pretending to be from amazon from mastercard from bt whoever it would you know you're on you i think you get on some kind of dark web list of people who might be too old to know what's going on and so the idea of putting my name on the book drawing more attention to our house potentially it would take you if you knew my name and uh, and you knew where the story was told from you could very easily find out find out where my parents were living and I thought I don't want to bring any more attention to this house as a place where people are vulnerable and uh, that became even more amplified when I realized that I didn't want to spend 24 hours a day seven days a week looking after them and I thought my god if you write a book and you put your name on it and it alerts people to the fact that these two very fragile people are living here then the only thing I would have to do is to move back in full time and by that point I'd almost escaped again so I thought no 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 take your name off the book and just see if anyone's interested anyway so that was the that was the practical reason really behind it absolutely fair enough and speaking of tech one of my favorite laugh out loud moments was when your mom asked you what an algorithm is and when you described it as a machine that guesses what you want or like a machine that guesses what you want, she said, when can we get one? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I mean, <laughs> thank you for pointing that out. And I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, so if I do, uh, if, 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 insofar as we can draw a lineage of our sense of humour, my mother, bless her, is a, is a very funny person. And she, I think, like a lot of older people, and, you know, if I live that long, I hope to be the same. She sort of sets out, I think, to try and figure out what's going on. But then she will reclaim a notion which is alien to her, an algorithm being such a notion. And I can't, I couldn't give you a dictionary definition of what one is. But she wants to kind of make modernity her own, if you know what I mean. And she tends to do that in quite a funny way. So, yeah, but also it is interesting that you're in a situation which is very undesirable in some respects. But as you start researching it, you know, and I was very lucky there were some really helpful charities and things that helped me out. Because as you know yourself, you know, you have to suddenly become not necessarily expert, but functional in areas of law and finance and your rights and, and navigating different things to do with healthcare and and social care and so on. And of course, you don't generally know these things until you need to know them. So, 
of course your computer picks up on this and then you know everything on your all, all the all the kind of digitally driven advertising you receive is suddenly geared towards that and you realize my god there's a huge secondary market in these stuff so you're being the algorithms are there for you whichever turn life takes but yes but mum's mum's very funny in her way of getting hold of those things yeah and this is obviously a very common issue at the moment um i know that that the stats that came with your book say one in eight in the uk are becoming carers to their parents. And here in Ireland, we're talking a lot about the sandwich generation because we're waiting longer to have children. You're caught in the middle of caring for elderly parents and having very young children, whereas traditionally many years before, you would all be kind of still in good health during all of that time. And by the time your parents reached that sort of age, your children would be adults and raised and could also help. And and we're kind of mixing that up. But in your case, you didn't have a family and that was one of the reasons it seemed to fall to you out of your other siblings. How did you feel about that decision? Well, to, I mean, to sort of dial back to the beginning of what you said there, because there's a lot of very interesting stuff wrapped up in it. And I should thank you again for reading the book so so carefully and so attentively. Um, I feel seen, as they say, although I suppose what shouldn't be a surprise to me, having written a sort of small autobiography and shared it in public. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think there is a sort of perfect storm afoot here, which as certain norms are disintegrating and changing. And there are many things to applaud in that about identity and behavior. And we have perhaps more control over whether we have children, when we have children and things of that nature and if we add that to what modern medicine has done for us which has sort of given us a tremendous ability to keep people alive but very little control over the quality of that existence so i think another factor there which is worth sort of connecting to everything you've just said is that you know my parents parents god bless them they died very quickly you know and they died much younger you know so generations are outliving their forebears living longer and, and, and differently and 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 the the way in which those lives end is becoming more and more complex and acquiring sorry requiring more and more hands-on attention which as you say is then coming from a generation which may possibly have young children themselves so as to my own uh, childlessness and and other factors in my personal life i just became the sibling most likely to sort of be there and that was profoundly underwritten by the fact that I actually had to move back in I'd I'd lost my house at that point so I I needed to go back into my teenage bedroom and kind of start again at the age of 47 which is you know kind of a complicating factor in itself but actually that did that difficulty that dissonance and to a certain degree I suppose one had a head start, really, because I think if many people get pulled in or volunteer for a caring situation, you do get a sense that you've kind of exited sort of modern life to an extent. You go back in time if you enter your parents' house, most of us, especially if in my case it was the house that you grew up in. And so not having kids was just one of those things in my life that made me think, have I messed this up? I'm sort of halfway through this business here of being human and I don't seem to have done the things that the other humans have set out to have done so I was already a bit vulnerable on that level and that was maybe escalated then by starting to look after the people who looked after you which of course is a very strange unique reversal of circumstances all of the difficult physical challenges apart it it does 
pull into your concept of identity challenges us psycho psychologically regardless of whether we think of ourselves as kind or lazy or indifferent or the worst names we might call ourselves at three o'clock in the morning it this stuff comes and finds you you know and so it is a big challenge but i do actually feel in retrospect and i don't think i'm making the best of a bad lot here that you know the fact that i didn't have kids and also it coincided with me finding it quite difficult to find work i was actually able to kind of get on with it in a way that perhaps someone who who did have a busy working life and had kids who needed them that would have been much more complicated but but i'll say this much you know human beings are unique and that uniqueness is multiplied by the family factor because that's humans multiplied by humans so everybody's role in their own family is is so extraordinary and so individual that I hope this is quite clear in the book as well, that I don't think we can really get called into there being a sort of archetypal correct response to this situation, this crisis, as it's often referred to in social care in the UK. It, it will take you where it finds you as a human being and it will change you. And I think if you're open to that, then even though there are things in it which are very, very difficult, um, it, it will inform your experience on this planet one way or another. So I don't think it's a thing to be avoided or feared for its own sake but equally the very real challenges in there should be acknowledged and i'm, I'm and the, if there are people out there who find it difficult to cope or that they can't cope i think that's absolutely fine but it's something i suppose we think about from when we're children once we get an understanding of death the first people we often go to are our parents wow one day my mom or my dad or whatever your family setup is aren't going to be here so you you live with this knowledge of it but when it starts to come to it and they begin to fail, you realise you're never fully prepared for it. And no matter what age you are, you're still feeling very much like their child. And it, it becomes quite a, a role reversal. What was the hardest part you found once you began caring for your parents? Well, I think you've kind of summed it up in in essence there. It is, I think, that what, what I think if we were being fancy here, we would call the existential challenge. I think once a human being realises it's not going to be here forever, um, and if that human being is in a functioning family at the time, the first place that human being is going to go to deal with that overwhelming fear is the parents. And then, you know, the human psyche being what it is, we find a way of coping with that information. We effectively suppress it to some degree and it pushes back to us and, you know, and certain bits of life or literature or art sometimes reconnect us to that idea of mortality and our time here and what it means. But generally, we've got a big handle on it and we, we have a way of dealing with it. And then if a situation like this arises, it does come back and really kind of... Uh, and, and and then you're embedded in this thing that you've maybe sort of hidden away from for, for most of your life since you were maybe five, six or seven years old. So as to when it kind of was hard for me, I would find it, I think it was hard. There are very few occasions when this happened, but when I saw my parents really quite despairing, I think I, like most kids, even and we're still kids when we're adults, obviously, when I kind of saw them sort of occasionally break down and sort of lose hope and sort of feel very weak and embarrassed and stuff. Because I think on some level we, we're running, we're running two kind of important models in our head. One of ourselves as somebody who can cope, and and there are probably certain other people in our life, generally our parents, and we have a model of them in our heads as people who are not only going to be here forever, but people who you know, and obviously not always, but you know, and in some cases not at all, are, are people who, who who can show us how to live life. So when they seem desperate and exasperated, and, and we want the end of people's lives to be comfortable and to have meaning in them. But when the circumstances get you better, get the better of you, and I, I saw them crack, and I can never know, but I suspect that even in their 
most difficult days they were probably putting on kind of a front for me as well you know so so th- those were the difficult times i think when i saw them despairing and 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 there was nothing right then that i could do you know and in that sense i suppose that is very much a parental experience which is not something that i had had because you know i think a lot a lot of us have to face that sometimes sometimes the cost of loving a human being is to understand that they are now in a situation where you can't help and and you know and that's that's part of the complication of it all isn't it yeah and not only are you saying goodbye to somebody or watching somebody you love diminish in certain ways i think you're also faced with your own mortality and your own situation that one day this this could be you and and I think we need to change up how we talk about aging that it shouldn't be something that's feared because in many areas of the world where it's it's celebrated they live longer it's a very important part of life so that we don't have it as something that's really uncomfortable and really taboo but like you said earlier it's so incredible that there are organisations out there because I certainly found myself in those moments of despair. You need to pick up the phone to some expert and say, what do I do? Because I don't know, I've never really been here before. Do you think you could care for somebody that wasn't family? Oh, God, yes. I think it's easier. And I'm not saying that in a flippant way. I mean, I have. So let's make one thing clear for anyone who might be building a sort of rosy mental picture of me here without engaging with the detail of the book necessarily. You know, I, this wasn't a one man show. Uh, as things became more complicated, many professional carers did eventually get involved in the situation um, and indeed still are. So I, one has a lot of time to talk to those people and, 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 and they create time and opportunity for you. And, you know, the part of the burden of the professional carer's job is they then have to sit down and write up what they've done and stuff. So often I would have a cup of tea with them. And, you know, one of the good things about old people, well, not the good things about old people, one the, they're quite often asleep. So you have these moments to kind of chat to the other people who are dealing with the situation. And so I don't know how many carers I spoke to, professional carers, but those that I did have conversations with were uniformly of the opinion that it was easier than looking after their own parents because you don't have all that baggage. You don't have all the kind of Freudian conflict coming back as the sort of family constellation, as they say in sort of psychology, sort of reasserts itself after all this time. And you're both a child and an adult and all these weird things that are working against each other. So sometimes I think it is easier to look after someone who we've never met before, who we're seeing for a short time, because, you know, and also we're less, we're probably less terrified by the mortality of that person that's gonna it's gonna cut us a little bit less maybe which is not to say that most of those people and and, and any human being can't be can't you you can be kind and practical you know with, without becoming consumed by sentimentality or fear and actually the um one of the carers that i work with at the moment said a tremendous thing to me she said um i don't have 50 years of memory in between me and what i'm trying to do it's like i'm not I, whereas i have the image of my parent my parents when they were both around it, it there and so I, some part of my psychology is holding the present against the past and this is sometimes where the pain comes from so if you haven't had all those decades together sometimes you can just deal with the problem rather than the problem and your emotion if that makes any sense no it it absolutely does and i i've a beautiful friend who became my dad's carer and she could meet him exactly where he was at and go off and you know have fun with him and, you know, he would enjoy his time as well. Whereas I think we were constantly looking for the dad that we knew through the years and we found it more difficult, much as we, you know, gave him the care and and enjoyed that time too. What did you learn about yourself through the process? 
Oh, God. Um, well, that's a great question, and I don't have a sort of ready-made answer for it. I mean, I suppose some stuff may be linked to that because I think I learned to sort of forgive myself a bit and to forgive other people. I learned, I think, to try and – in because I was forcibly – I was kind of forced into an embrace. I, I became like an arranged marriage with, with, with my idea of how life should be and then the reality of how life is. So the whole thing became a wonderful – experience of 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 being divested stripped of my fantasies of perfection my ambitions much of which were sort of childish you know these are things that we try to hang on to um there's a lot of uh one must always be wary i think when 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 a word becomes sort of used casually by giant corporations and story has become one of those words you know banks multinational companies governments are all interested in telling you about your story now but stories are dangerous things as well as powerful things anything powerful has that possibility i think and getting stuck into a narrative about who you are and who you should be can be as restrictive as it is liberating so to some extent I, I I was fortunate, I think, in that I saw certain ideas about who I was and even who my parents were fall away, and yet we were able to continue to live together and help each other. So I feel like I lost, you know, life fills us up with this propaganda about who we are and what we should do, and it's very subjective. You know, ideas of identity can be can be really very limiting for, for all the apparent liberation therein. So, you know, it, it, it was good. It, it changed my sense of who I was. It changed my sense of, of, of what had meaning and what didn't. I was much more comfortable with my limitations, my embarrassment, my sort of shame in some things like that because there was no escape, you know, and if I'd have been a wealthier person, I could have run away from it. You know what I mean? If other things in my life had not been the way they were, I would have had maybe more help and more people to talk to when it was happening. So, you know, and I, I suppose through writing, which, you know, since I was quite a young child, had always been a way that I kind of interpreted what was happening in my life. I, I started keeping a diary that enabled me to interpret it. And now I feel, you know, remarkably fortunate that it's it, it's it, it's reached and seems to be reaching as many people as it has done, because I think this was an experience that many people went through in private and questioned themselves and who they were and that stuff. And, you know, I went through it and I wrote it down and I realized it was all right. And it seems like that's something that people people want to hear. Well, I certainly got from the book that though it was a challenging time, you still see it as a special and rewarding time. And and I could totally relate to that. Um, I think people can hear from this conversation we've had how eloquent you are. The book is beautifully written. And as I say, there's some laugh out loud moments, but there's also a real insight into human behaviour for everyone, not just those who are carers, reluctant or otherwise. The book is called The Reluctant Carer, Dispatches from the Edge of Life. To the anonymous reluctant carer, thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you very much for for, for having me on, on the show, Claire. Thank you to everyone who's listening as well. Now, many of you may have felt a little apprehensive about your first big event post-pandemic. Would the crowds get to you? Can you still do small talk? Do you prefer the couch to the dance floor? And has lockdown only made this clearer? But what if social anxiety is something that has always clouded your social events? Dr. Eddie Murphy is clinical psychologist, probably best known from Operation Transformation, and he is on the line now. Hello, Eddie. How are you? Claire, hi. It's lovely to talk to you and talk to your listeners. And I'm really looking forward to talking today about 
maybe stretching what we understand about social anxiety, but also social confidence and the impact that has around the recent period, COVID period. And I think I was confusing social anxiety with agoraphobia, the fear of going out at all. So how is social anxiety defined? So social anxiety, there's two forms. So, 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 so just like I'll go I'll step back a little bit. It's actually the, the most common anxiety presentation, but it was the last one described. And about 13%, about one in eight, every eight adults in Ireland would have social anxiety. It is more common in women and in men. Now, sometimes it's, it's also called social phobia. Some people are introverted, and it's not about people who are introverted and comfortable in their own skin. It's about, some, and it's not just shyness. It's when our engagement in social activities impacts on our, uh, our our enjoyment, our quality of life, our social functioning, and it uh, generates a, a levels of anxiety that are really significant. And it comes in two uh, branches, as it were. You can have, some people can have a specific social anxiety. So for example, that would be like giving a best man speech at a wedding or read, reading a, maybe at a, a funeral mass or something like that. That can be extremely difficult for some people. Um, and that's a specific social anxiety. And some people have generalized on social anxiety. And that's when it becomes uh, really crippling in the social situation. And what happened was in COVID, people could retreat to uh, their homes, obviously, if they were home-based working for many people. And it became really comfortable. And in a way, they uh, de some people de-skilled or some people didn't get up into some organizations. I've gone out and done lots of work-based talks now. And there's a struggle for some workers to get back into work. And part of that struggle for some is around social anxiety. And do you have to push through, Eddie, or can you just stay in and retreat from the world? Well, it's clear. What we know is from 130 years of psychological science, of all the anxiety presentations in modern psychology, we're actually less interested where, we'll say, anxiety comes from. We acknowledge that and work with that. But what we really focus on is what keeps a problem going. And when it comes to anxiety, whether it's panic attack, generalized anxiety, the phobias, if I imagine now and imagine your listeners, if I had the power to put a rat or a spider or a snake in the room with you now, what is it that you would like to do? What would you do, Claire? Leave the room. <laughs> exactly. So that's called avoidance, yeah? And we do this with all levels of anxiety. We, uh, we, we, we throw out lots of adrenaline. We go into our fight, flight, or freeze mode, and we uh, put avoidance. And with social anxiety um, and all the anxiety-based, avoidance is one of the key behavioral patterns and that's where we start when we're working with individuals with social anxiety. We develop like a, a ladder, as it were, and we go small steps at a time and we go into this exposure, but putting a facing the fearing, doing it anyway, and giving people a relaxation response going into those feared situations. But avoidance is one of the key features of social anxiety. And actually, um, because so just a situation like people dread small talk, they hate being the centre of attention. How I see social anxiety is like people have a radar and they're always observing what other people and they're always concerned about what other people are thinking about them. And the 
cognitive error, if you want, the thinking error there is a person is engaged in mind reading all the time. And here's the, the deal. In, in life, most of us are not concerned about what other people are thinking. We're actually we're engaged in our own thoughts. And people are concerned about being ridiculous or stupid or pe- being perceived as this, but this judgment from other people. It's never a positive judgment. And then people use uh, the avoidance as a strategy or sometimes, for example, and big, big fears that people have around facial flushing or perspiring or shaking or stammering. There's some of the sort of physical manifestations of it. And for, for women, they might wear really excessive makeup to hide the facial flushing. And that would be called a safety behavior or wearing dark clothing to sort of hide perspiring. But if you think about the weather at the moment, like we're all, it's natural to perspire and sweat. And uh, so it's how people are making these judgments on themselves. It can be very anxious, uh, can very anxiety provoking. And is it further impacted by the world we live in where we rate ourselves in many ways with social media, where there are likes and followers and, and friends that we're constantly looking for an outside validation? It's like you're setting out your stall and seeing what people think of it. Is that having an impact on people's social anxiety? I think it may have some impact, but not as much as the real world experience, because it's not—it's the in the real world that the person. So, I, a person with social anxiety, um, and we're learning a lot more. Just like we're learning about neurodiversity and all different presentations, there's no one one particular pathway for people. But if I'm in uh, on social media and stuff like that. That's that's not necessarily impacting my social anxiety. It's when I'm out in the real world and I'm, I'm then being judged by others. And that's where it really impacts. So people with social anxiety often don't uh, seek to progress in work because they struggle with interview situations. or So they, they, they bottom, bottom out and they're hugely capable, like brilliant uh, people who've put their anxiety holds them back. And I know you said this can happen in any social setting, be it a family occasion or going back to work. But when it comes to a typical social occasion, does the social lubricant of alcohol make things worse or better? Yeah, it can help people, um, but it, it can be it can, it can be but a sword and shield. So it can assist people, but it's about controlling it. So, for example, I saw this gentleman. I was working in um, in cardiac rehabilitation. So I, I work in the health service, but this was quite a number of years ago, about ten years ago. And this gentleman came in, and he was after a heart attack. And so it, it was about a mood related after, which is common. About twenty percent of people after a significant cardiac event, their mood can drop and their anxiety. And then we got into it, and it turned out that he was um when i went through his history he he had social anxiety you know we, he didn't discover this until we did the work together he then used alcohol and he developed an addiction to alcohol so the addiction became his safety behavior but it became the most problem for him so we we sort of went back down the line we looked at the mood the addiction and then the the triggering to both of those pieces was around social anxiety, particularly for his alcohol use. So, but he, when he got to understand, it can happen because sometimes uh, there's a biological component too, and uh, but also sometimes it can be big shameful experiences. Like uh, often in therapy, people would talk about in teaching, particularly different age groups, 
how the teach when they were reading out loud in class, there was a, like a shaming experience. And when the person had that shaming experience by a teacher or something, when they were reading out, stuttering, they, they w- would remember maybe over a word, the class would laugh, they would blush. And it became a real feature of uh, they sort of uh, ingrained at that moment in time. The real good news here is there's really effective treatments for social anxiety, even for people who uh, have lost social confidence, and that's for, about returning to work, but certainly for social anxiety, really uh, very effective treatments. And and what are they? And are they essentially stopping the, the voice in your head or, or stopping that negative pattern you have of, of how you will be perceived? So the most evidence-based treatment is cognitive behavioural therapy. Cognitive is how we think, behavioural is what we do. And the cognitive, that thinking thing, is identifying the mind reading, the, the type of thoughts and when engaged in a pattern. And then also it's looking at those irrational beliefs and thought, thought patterns and replacing them with more realistic views. And then it's about the behavioural-based uh, interventions, like going into social situations, maybe calling attention to yourself. When you wouldn't, for example, a person w- with social anxiety would rarely return clothes because they wouldn't want to get into a situation where they're returning something to somebody or they wouldn't draw attention onto themselves. And so it's like setting up social situations where they may they would be going into feared and social situations. And what's the best case scenario then? How should we feel within ourselves going into social situations? After treatment or before treatment? Claire? Yeah, after treatment. Like what is the, the optimum way to so, be So it's a feel? positive outcome. Uh, so effectively with a successful intervention, up to 80% of people with social anxiety will have, have uh, normal levels of anxiety going into some of those fear situations but not a level where their their um, impacts on their quality of life so there's really strong evidence for early intervention but also intervention Dr Eddie Murphy clinical psychologist thank you so much for coming on thank you very much I really appreciate it so that's it for Live and Kicking for this week my thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening I will see you next week Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.